From the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, this is Better Off, a podcast about the biggest public health problems we face today. Whenever a new vaccine is rolled out to the American public, particularly in a time of emergency and crisis, it raises all these issues of trust and confidence. And the people innovating to create public health solutions. The most important thing to remember is that when prevention works, absolutely nothing happens and all you have is the miracle of a perfectly normal, healthy day. And that, that's what we need right now. I'm your host, Anna Fisher-Pinkert. On January 20th, 2021, Joseph R. Biden will become the 46th president of the United States. And no matter who you supported in the 2020 election, I think we can all agree that it's a big relief to stop seeing all those political ads, to stop watching pundits wave their arms in front of big electoral maps. But here's the thing. The COVID-19 virus doesn't care about the election or politics or pundits. It just keeps going. And one model predicts that the U.S. will see nearly 400,000 deaths from COVID-19 by February. Now, President-elect Biden has laid out a plan that he says will get the pandemic under control. But with numbers like those, it's hard not to wonder, are we too far gone? Is there any action that the U.S. government could take right now that would turn things around? And what would those solutions look like? So we're going to talk today about the federal government, the presidential transition, and how to stop the pandemic that just keeps growing. This week, we're better off with Howard Coe, health policy expert. Let's start by going back to June of 2009, when the U.S. was in the middle of another public health crisis. The CDC has confirmed America's first swine flu death, a 23-month-old toddler in Texas. Health officials are preparing for the worst. The CDC expects multiple There's been 130 cases reported in the U.S. at this point. It's spreading, albeit slowly. H1N1, initially called swine flu, was first detected in a 10-year-old patient on April 15, 2009, in California. Barack Obama had been in office for less than 100 days. By June, all 50 states and more than 70 countries had reported cases of H1N1. So literally from my first day, that was the issue that was highest on my agenda for many months going forward. So it was an unforgettable time. That's Dr. Howard Coe. He is now the Harvey V. Feinberg Professor of the Practice of Public Health Leadership at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. In June of 2009, he joined the Department of Health and Human Services as Assistant Secretary for Health. And this was quite a time to start a new job. His office was helping to coordinate the department's public health response to the first flu pandemic in 40 years, with a special focus on vaccine safety. The big difference between then and now is we already had some candidate vaccines in the pipeline, and we were pretty sure a vaccine would come sooner rather than later. Having a head start on the vaccine was a huge boost to the pandemic response. But just having a vaccine doesn't halt a pandemic in its tracks. People need to actually go out and get vaccinated. And to get them to do that, you need to earn their trust. Whenever a new vaccine is rolled out to the American public, particularly in a time of emergency and crisis, it raises all these issues of trust and confidence. And we knew that if we had an excellent scientific system that was tracking adverse outcomes and safety profiles, that that would go a long way to making 
that new vaccine acceptable to the American public. Before clinical trials for the H1N1 vaccine began in July of 2009, HHS already had two different vaccine safety monitoring systems. One is a coordinated effort between the CDC and the FDA. The other is a collaboration between the CDC and eight managed care organizations. On top of that, HHS convened an additional safety working group. So while the vaccines were being developed at top speed, they had all of these safety checks in place. When you ask people to take a vaccine, you're asking otherwise healthy people to take a risk to stay healthy. So the bar has got to be really high that it's got to be safe as, as well as effective. The first vaccines were approved by the FDA in September, and by October, HHS had launched a campaign to encourage Americans to get vaccinated. But after the vaccine was finally ready, a new problem emerged. Harry, the government has ordered 250 million doses of the H1N1 vaccine, which it anticipates will be enough to cover demand in the United States. But the CDC admits that getting the vaccine out will be bumpy at first. HHS had to figure out how to get enough vaccine doses out to the American public. Those opening months were very difficult because the good news was a vaccine became available. The bad news was... And this happens with any new vaccine rollout. Initially, supply did not meet the demand. So there was uh, at least several months where trying to meet that demand was a very, very stress, stressful for everybody in public health. And yet by the end of February 2010, 10 months into the pandemic, the CDC estimated that 24 to 27 percent of Americans had received the H1N1 vaccine. Kids were one of the groups most vulnerable to H1N1, and 40% of American kids got the vaccine. Fortunately, cases of H1N1 were already on the decline in the U.S. by the time the vaccine was in wide distribution. By August of 2010, WHO announced that the H1N1 pandemic was over. Medical associations across the country and around the world now seem to be speaking with one voice on the swine flu. They're reporting steep declines in the number of new cases. But when I look back, what I'm proud of, despite the fact it was so challenging and we had some 12,000 deaths, which were very difficult to endure, was that we all worked together as a one government approach, federal, state and local colleagues. When it was over, we learned a lot in terms of trying to prepare for the next one. And now here we are in the middle of the next one. And the outcomes are so much worse this time. All told, H1N1 was responsible for the deaths of 12,500 Americans and 284,000 people worldwide. It was a terrible and terrifying disease. But when I hear those numbers, it almost seems like there should be another word to describe the type of pandemic we're living through now. At the time of this recording, more than 250,000 people have died of COVID-19 in the U.S., and 1.3 million people have died around the world. There were a lot of factors working in the U.S. government's favor when it came to responding to H1N1. There was already a vaccine in the pipeline. Older adults had some immunity to H1N1 because of previous exposure to similar flu strains. And H1N1 responded well to available treatments like Tamiflu. But when he looks back, Howard Coe thinks there's more to it than that. Some of the success in combating H1N1 can't just be attributed to the nature of the virus itself. So I asked him, as someone who formerly worked in the federal government, what exactly went wrong when it came to our response to COVID-19? We are into the 10th month and counting of our pandemic response here in 2020. 
And Anna, we can already look back and say there's so many aspects of this response that we wish could have gone differently. You know, a major overriding theme is we still don't have a national plan for the country for this national emergency. He says there was a lot of collaboration and communication between local, state, and federal governments during H1N1 that just did not happen at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. So if we think back to where we were in April, you remember that we had a national shutdown and then there were plans to reopen the country and certain criteria were put forward to the country and to the states about what indicators to follow as states decide to open back up. Numbers of new cases, test positivity, numbers of deaths, whether those trends were going up or going down. And so those are, in general, good guiding principles back then. But the problem was, Anna, that those were followed in very inconsistent fashion. The decision to proceed was left up to the states, which is, on one hand, fine, but there has to be some coordination and tracking of how each state is doing. And unlike during H1N1, communications from government, at least from the federal government, have been largely led by politicians, not by public health experts. And Howard Coe says that led to a lot of confusion about the science behind the COVID-19 response. The national communication to the public was very inconsistent. You know, the White House briefings came and went. Uh, Sometimes health officials were there, sometimes they weren't. Uh, We all know that in a time of emergencies, what the American people want to hear is scientific information from scientists, because if anybody else is putting forward that information, they don't have the credibility and trust. Trust seems to be the missing ingredient in the COVID-19 battle. Science itself has become politicized, whether it's mask wearing or getting vaccinated. Can we even hope to put science back in the center of the conversation around the pandemic? So, Anna, that's a question I think about regularly because I'm a public health professional who has had the privilege of serving multiple Republican governors and then a Democratic president. So I have always viewed public health as a bipartisan, if not nonpartisan, issue, particularly in the midst of a pandemic. I mean, we, we should just put aside those partisan differences and just focus on conquering this virus and getting us to the other side of this terrible, terrible emergency. The president-elect has said repeatedly that when he begins, he will empower his top public health agencies and empower his top public health scientists. The current administration has done that inconsistently up to now, if I can say. Uh, And then the president-elect has also pledged And we may even hear this on the opening day or two of the new administration uh, to put forward efforts to have a national mask requirement. Now, President-elect Biden always wears a mask in public and his events are always socially distanced according to the science. And I, I think when the president acts consistently based on science, people follow. They when a president acts and speaks, millions pay attention and follow. So I think that change alone hopefully will make a big difference. 
Another area where Howard Coe would like to see Biden break from Trump's approach is how his administration works with civil servants. Those are the people who work in federal agencies like HHS, but they're not political appointees. President Trump has been openly hostile to career scientists and administrators in HHS, CDC, and NIH. But Howard Coe has a different perspective on the people who work in those jobs. You know, I've had the privilege of serving at the state and federal level in public health departments. And the overwhelming majority of my colleagues are civil servants. At HHS, for example, there are 80,000 employees and about 79,500 or more are career civil servants. They stay regardless of what the administration is. Their mission is to get up every morning and protect the American people and help them be as healthy as possible, regardless of the political party involved and regardless of what the threat is. So when you work shoulder to shoulder with colleagues like that, it really humbles you because they are working really hard. But my time in federal government was just the most uh, inspiring time because I met so many incredible people who cared so much about our society, which is why I love this field of public health. And I encourage all my students to at least do a rotation in government, even if it's just a summer internship, to see what it's like, understand the challenges and the opportunities, and get a big picture view of what public health is all about. These experiences make you absolutely passionate about good government and making sure the right people are in there doing the right job at the right time. When Joe Biden takes office, the biggest and most immediate concern will be the rollout of a successful COVID-19 vaccine. Just like in 2009, there are two big concerns around the vaccine. One, that there may not be enough vaccine for those who want to get vaccinated right away. And two, that there will be some who should get the vaccine and don't trust that it's safe. This is of particular concern in communities of color, where rates of COVID-19 deaths are disproportionately high, but polls show that Black Americans are less likely to want to get vaccinated. This is where coordination between the federal, state, and local health authorities is key. Right now, every state has, in fact, put in a distribution plan to HHS, and those are being reviewed and coordinated going forward. And then each state and local public health organization has got to identify high-risk groups within their own locales and make sure that those communities are engaged. So particularly at the local level, and let's say for communities of color, making sure that local leaders are engaged in this effort is absolutely important. This is where building the strongest non-traditional partnerships is key. If Howard Coe were back in D.C. today, he'd have a few words of advice for the incoming administration. First on the agenda, prevention, prevention, prevention. If we take the biggest picture and ask, how did we get here? Why are we seeing such devastating outcomes, particularly for at-risk populations, for communities of color, for older people with pre-existing conditions? It's because... As a nation, we have just not supported the concept of disease prevention the way we could and should. Only two to three cents on a healthcare dollar is spent on disease prevention. And so much of this could have and should have been prevented looking back. I often reflect, Anna, that after 9 11 and anthrax in 2002, Congress also set up 
public health emergency preparedness programs and hospital preparedness programs and said, okay, we're going to give you funds for planning and coordination and tracking and surveillance. And But over time, everybody became more concerned about other issues. And then the funding for all those efforts went down. And the theme of prevention is hard to keep alive because, as I often point out, when prevention works, absolutely nothing happens. And all you have is the miracle of a perfectly normal, healthy day. And that, that's what we need right now. It will likely take years before we can fully understand all the different actions and reactions that caused the COVID-19 pandemic to become the big one, the pandemic that dwarfed all others in recent memory. We just have to hope that our leaders take those hard lessons and use them to prevent the next big one. We're going to take a short holiday break, but when we come back, we'll be bringing you episodes about mental health, sexual health, vaccines, and more. So subscribe to Better Off in your favorite podcast app to get episodes every other Wednesday. And if you like the show so far, rate and review us and tell your friends about the podcast, too. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at HarvardChanSPH. We're better off with our team, Chief Communications Officer Todd Datz, Senior Digital Designer Ben Wallace, Production Assistant Brian Lee. I'm Anna Fisher-Pinkert, host and producer of Better Off, a podcast of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health.